Good morning. It's Wednesday, September 22nd. I'm Shemitah Basu. And I'm Duarte Geraldino. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them. The pay is absolute crap. That's not my words. That's what one woman who recently left her job in childcare said. She says she's moved on to a new job in administration where she's earning more and getting health insurance. The Washington Post explains hiring and keeping childcare workers has always been tough. But now it's reached a new level of crisis that's affecting parents and the whole economy. That shortage of workers is part of the reason so many parents can't find childcare right now. The Post speaks to daycare managers and researchers who explain how these businesses run on really tight margins. To raise salaries, they have to increase fees. But if they do, many families won't be able to afford daycare. It's a bind that's squeezing parents, workers, and daycare owners. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen calls American childcare a textbook example of a broken market. Politico looks at how it may be affecting the entire American workforce. After all, if a parent can't find childcare, it's going to be tough for them to go to work. Recent job numbers show more than 40,000 women dropped out of the labor force between July and August. And this happened as men were returning in large numbers. The Biden administration is using numbers like these to call for national investment in childcare. You know that $3.5 trillion spending proposal Congress is arguing over right now? It includes $450 billion for childcare. Some money would go to daycare providers to help improve pay. Other funds would be for families. Politico's recent polling shows two-thirds of registered voters support spending federal money on childcare, but there's far less backing from Republicans. GOP lawmakers and some moderate Democrats say the plan is too expensive, too broad. They're critical that rich families would benefit. Some legislators want a smaller plan focused on parents with low incomes. It's not clear new childcare funding can pass Congress. And that's threatening not only the viability of many daycare centers, but also the livelihoods of workers, as well as families desperate for safe and reliable childcare. For several decades, the Voting Rights Act drove southern states to create districts with a majority of black voters. Often when you looked at it on maps, the shapes were bizarre. The idea was to get more black politicians elected, and it worked. In the 1992 election, the number of black members of Congress from the South tripled. But the side effect of this was other districts became more Republican. Now as lawmakers prep new maps, some black politicians want their districts broken up. The same districts that used to be essential to electing black candidates in the South could now be inhibiting opportunities for more representation. That's David Wasserman from the Cook Political Report. In a new article for The Atlantic, he explains how the political strategy is evolving. There's really been a sea change in the last several years where we've seen a number of black members elected from districts without much black population, including Lauren Underwood from Illinois or Johanna Hayes from Connecticut or Antonio Delgado from upstate New York. These are districts where African-Americans represent less than 10% of the population. But that has caused, I think, an attitudinal shift in the black caucus that affects their strategy going forward. 
Wasserman also says, when black people are packed into a district, it dilutes their political power and it makes surrounding districts whiter. He spent the summer talking with members of the Congressional Black Caucus. Alabama Congresswoman Terry Sewell represents a district that's 61% black. It's a pretty safe seat for her. Wasserman told us why she wants to break up her district. Now, in the most recent census in 2020, black residents were 27% of the state, but they really only have an opportunity in one out of Alabama's seven districts. If representation were truly proportional, it would be pretty straightforward to make the case that African-Americans should have an opportunity to elect two of seven members in the state. And it is possible, it would be possible to draw two African-American majority districts instead of one hyper-Black district like the one that Sewell represents now. Democrats see a political opportunity here. If new maps distribute Black Democrats more widely, that could mean more seats for Dems in a closely divided House. The party is gearing up to fight in courts. The more you look at race and redistricting, the law has not kept up with changing political and demographic realities. Democrats badly want courts to adjust their approach to race and redistricting to meet the realities of the times. Republicans oppose this because they see it as a backdoor for Democrats simply gaining more seats in the South, and they see their motives as partisan. We're going to talk about the U.S. debt ceiling now, but don't worry, we're not going into the politics. All you really need to know here is the House voted last night to raise the debt ceiling. And in the Senate, Republicans say they will not back a Democratic move to raise the debt ceiling. We want to explain now how a failure to do that, which means the government failing to pay its bills, could cause a ripple effect all the way to your wallet. Okay, standard caveat here. As the L.A. Times and practically every story ever always explains, America has never intentionally defaulted on its debt. Politicians love to play chicken with this, but eventually they pay the bills. But what would happen if they didn't? What would be the consequences? Let's talk about the doomsday scenario. Economists at Moody's Analytics say a prolonged fight over the debt ceiling could cause major economic damage. Six million jobs lost, $15 trillion in household wealth destroyed. As you might expect, the government gets a very different deal than you or I would if we decide to stop paying our bills. Depending on what kind of money you've borrowed, failing to pay your debts could mean that the bank takes your home or a loan shark comes after you. The U.S. government doesn't worry about stuff like that. It's concerned about bond traders. The bond market, it's complicated. Think about it this way. America basically borrows money from every investor on Earth, including us. If you've got a 401k, you've probably got some U.S. government bonds. Those bonds are basically loans to the government. The interest on the debt is super low because the U.S. has great credit. It always pays up. But if it defaults, those interest rates would likely jump because the market doesn't trust America to pay it back anymore. Rates on U.S. Treasuries influence all kinds of other loans, not just government stuff. Home mortgages, credit cards, car loans, all those rates could jump. That could have a ripple effect on home prices, retirement funds, all kinds of stuff. If the government takes a long time to raise the debt ceiling, it could be enough to cause a recession. As we said, that's the doomsday scenario. Politicians have pushed things to the brink but never passed the point where America doesn't pay what it owes. 
But there are real stakes to this that affect us. It's worth keeping in mind as you watch how the latest game of chicken plays out on the Hill. Here's a little story for you about how crazy the real estate market is. A house in Boston that's only about 10 feet wide just sold for $1.25 million. Tourists, they just love checking out this place and posting pics on Instagram with this oddly shaped home. It's a big attraction in Boston. The real estate agent says tourists can't believe anyone really lives inside. And just for reference, a typical elevator is around seven feet wide. So this house is just a little bit wider than that. Maybe if you've lived in a New York City apartment, you wouldn't even blink at that. But it is (laughs) tiny. The house was built back in the 19th century. And it's got a funny origin story, too. The locals call it the Spite House. NPR explains the legend behind this slim building. So two brothers, they inherit the land around the time of the Civil War. One goes off to fight. When he gets back, he finds his brother had built a house partly on his share of the land. So this combat veteran, he fights back. He builds a skinny house right up against his brother's covering up windows, blocking light, and access to the encroaching house. It was real estate revenge in a sibling rivalry. The pictures of this house are really worth seeing if you want to see just how much you can squeeze into 10 feet. It's got two bedrooms, one bathroom. The side windows look directly out at brick walls, so there's not much of a view there. But they've managed to fit a pretty nice-looking architectural staircase and a decent-looking kitchen in there, too. If you're listening in the Apple News app, just tap the notification we sent you midway through the show. You can see the pictures there. And while you're in the app, Keep listening to hear narrated articles from our News Plus partners. We'll talk with you again tomorrow. 